you know, or like that idea in the Torah that if you save one life, you save the world. It's like everything matters. How you talk to your child matters. How you tend your garden matters. How you love a friend when they're down matters. It all matters. It's all witnessed. It's all how your intimate heart displays its fidelity to cosmic love or not, moment by moment. to the Magic of the Spheres podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. If this is your first time here, welcome. I'm super excited to have you. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, and I started this podcast to have more eclectic conversations, both about astrology and astrology's intersections with personal development and living a spiritual life. Some of our episodes are about astrology and some are not. Uh, This one is definitely an astrological episode. I've been really excited to share this interview with Mark Jones with you all. We recorded some time ago during Magic of the Spheres winter hiatus. And as I would have expected or anyone who knows Mark would have expected, this conversation was lively and full of spontaneous gems. I'd read Mark's book, The Soul Speaks, when I was first beginning to see clients within my evolutionary astrology practice in 2014, 2015, thereabouts, and it fundamentally oriented me in my counseling work and still is one of my biggest influences to this day in how I see client work. I then met him at Norwalk in 2016, the Northwest Astrological Conference, and attended one of his workshops and was blown away. I'd gotten a reading with him during a profoundly difficult time in my life and mentored with him, and I really admire his experience, knowledge, and his capacity to be radically present within the transformational potential in the field, uh, the field of a teaching or therapeutic encounter. The Northwest Astrological Conference is one of my favorite things. I look forward to it every year. It's going virtual this year because of the pandemic. So I'm also going to leave a link in the show notes. And due to it going virtual, there's now more room to sign up. So if you are wanting to advance your astrology education, this would be a really great opportunity for you. If you already know Mark Jones, you know you're in for a great episode. And if I am introducing you, then it is sincerely my pleasure to. Mark Jones is an astrologer, teacher, psychosynthesis therapist, and hypnotherapist working with clients and students throughout the world. Mark's first book, Healing the Soul, Pluto, Uranus, and the Lunar Nodes, explains in detail his astrological method. His second book, The Soul Speaks, The Therapeutic Potential of Astrology, fuses Mark's experience as a transpersonal psychotherapist with astrology to outline the transformative potential of an astrological reading. In addition, Mark has authored chapters in Astrology, The New Generation, Transpersonal Astrology, and Insights into Evolutionary Astrology. From 15 years in private practice as a psychotherapist and astrologer, what has now been over 10,000 hours of client work, Mark has developed a model of transformational astrological counseling in which he works with individuals after the initial natal chart reading to support achievement of their true potential. 
In this conversation, we spoke about the Pluto archetype and we explored Virgo and Pluto and Virgo specifically. But this episode is full of universals, regardless of what we have in Virgo in our charts. We all have Virgo experiences, uh, the experience of self-analysis, self-criticism, perfectionism, and learning how to relate to our pursuit of self-refinement and the capacity to be introspective and to analyze ourselves without falling into a great abyss of self-doubt in the process. The Pluto and Virgo generation were born roughly between 1957 to 1972. But of course, if you don't know if a chart, your own or someone else's, is a Pluto and Virgo chart, look up the natal chart on a software like astro.com. We also spoke about so many different things like trauma scanning, that's looking for fault in one's environment, manifestation, the so-called placebo effect, and the power of belief, and finding grace and meaning in one's own intimate corner of the universe, and more. Mark has some upcoming in-person workshops in Bend, Oregon, September 4th through 7th of this year, and in Newport, Wales, October 26th to 30th, 2020. I've left the links to his workshops in the show notes if that's something that you want to check out. We've got the Northwest Astrological Conference on the horizon. And speaking of virtual events, if you are catching this episode at the time of its release, you still have time to catch the Astrology of Awakening Virtual Summit happening April 10 through 12, 2020. I will be presenting there in the company of 11 brilliant women astrologers, and we will be sharing our greatest insights on how to navigate the journey that lies before us, this moment where we're in a transition time between worlds, the old one fading before our eyes while the new one beckons not yet born. Astrologers have been forecasting 2020 as a pivotal year of profound change where no one is left untouched. As we take divine pause in the chrysalis of transformation where we put our focus and attention is key to the future we'll create. So the talk that I'm including in this is called The Integration of Awakening, Saturn in Aquarius, and it's about how to integrate heightened feelings and sensations like excitement and aliveness into your everyday life and how that is the sustaining or the disciplined part of awakening that Saturn can help us do. When I first started practicing evolutionary astrology, I also was studying law of attraction and manifestation teaching, something that we'll talk about in this episode as well. And I realized that there was a parallel between Saturn and karma and the way that people talk about manifestation, the way that we talk about how this reality that is now real and concrete was once dreamt up, was once a vision, that this reality is a reflection of the past, thoughts and feelings and visions, right? So if we want to create a new reality, it starts with our dreams and visions and feelings and sensations and learning how to weave those into this concrete material reality. So that's what I'm going to be presenting about. And there's going to be a bunch of amazing talks. I'm really honored to be part of this group. And I'm going to leave that link in the show notes if you want to register for this summit. It will be free to attend and the replays will be available for 72 hours afterwards. And then you can also purchase the Awaken package, um, which is a great deal. You'll get all of the talks, a lifetime access to all of the talks, as well as bonus gifts from all of the presenters, including myself. So without further ado, this is my conversation with Mark Jones.
Welcome, Mark. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. You have such a compelling vision of therapeutic astrology and have offered so much value to the astrology community. And I have really been influenced by your work, so I'm really excited to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. No, it's a real privilege. Thanks for inviting me. Well, and thanks for noticing, you know, <laughs> I really, I really did spend a long time sort of suspending certain astrological interests and studies of mine to blend it with a spiritually informed, a democratically spiritually informed vision of psychotherapy or counseling in a way that might make astrology a more useful or dynamic transformational tool for people rather than remaining on an abstract or intellectual level about their lives, you know? Yeah. Can you, yeah. Can you describe what your like therapeutic vision of astrology is? Well, in a sense, it's, it's both respectful to astrology, but it's also a, an understanding of astrological limitation in a way that, that what you have got is this incredible tool, this map, but a map is not the same as a map's useful, but it's not the same as going on the trip, is it? The trip is different. Even a weekend adventure hiking in the mountains, the map helps get there, but it's not the actual experience of hiking with your friends that weekend. And I wanted to point the, the power of that map to help people because there's layers within that map, really, in a way. There's layers in astrology. You can look at someone's conscious orientation to their personality self. You can look at their unconscious orientation. You can look at the way their deeper unconscious uh, filters or opens up to the collective unconscious. And I wanted to look at ways of pointing that out more, being more direct. Not like doing a reading and then someone spends ages listening to the reading and then later in life maybe does some counseling or some therapy. I wanted the reading itself to have some of that embedded information. And I was in this unusual position in that I'd been a therapist in private practice for years, as well as an astrologer. So I had, at least in potential, this set of tools that I could blend together to achieve that purpose. So I began to contemplate that very directly. It's what read, led to my second book, really, The Soul Speaks, The Therapeutic Potential of Astrology. I paused lots of research on the lunar and planetary nodes in order to explore you know, the archetypes as a developmental model, you know, growing through time from birth at Aries to the formation of a personal self at Cancer towards growing towards meaningful relationships at Libra, this kind of model of thinking. And also the archetypes is maybe like an inspirational story, you know, courage at Aries, values at Taurus, you know, building a complete person so that when we do readings, we can look at the way we language or the way we open to our clients so that they're actually having an energetic impact space occur within the reading not just an intellectual descriptive space from the outside of their personality traits, et cetera, which is often kind of disappointing anyway, I find. You know, the kind of astrology that tries to cleverly work out what kind of person you are gets disappointing quickly, especially if you're relatively self-aware. Right. It's nice to have an astrology reading like touch you very deeply and offer you a kind of transformation in that moment of how you're perceiving yourself and your opportunities moving forward in a way I imagine too, that's not limiting or giving people, you know, these trappings based on what you see in their chart. Um, but having a broad minded enough view of the archetypes to be able to give people options. Exactly. Exactly. And then it transcends astrology sometimes. Sometimes it's, the, it's being led by the astrological understanding. 
and that begins to build this background energetic mandala imprint, if you like. And then sometimes that just goes into pure energetics. Like I remember stopping in this one reading, a lady talking about their, we'd been looking at Saturn and then we were talking about her dead father and how he passed and how she was unable to share her love for him because of the difficulties in the past and you know the kind of reparative meeting never took place. So I was just like, Right. I mean, we were in some hotel room somewhere. We were both tired in the middle of a conference. I was like, right, let's just stop right now. You know, maybe you could say that to him now, you know, maybe because she'd said some phrase like maybe he's looking down now or something like that. And I was like, why don't we just assume he is? Why don't we just open to that possibility right now? And what would you say to him? She sought me out a couple of years later. I'd forgotten we'd done that. And this, just you milling around a conference, the same conference a couple of years later, she came to me, she said, you know, you, talk, you, know, you said that to say that to my dad. And it's like, you know, just lift someone. It's just like the immediacy. It's like you have that regret. It's super powerful. You know, a, a, a dead parent. You know, I know what it's like to lose one's father young. It's not an easy transition. And so, you know, and I know from my own personal experience, the meaning of even the small snippets of meaningful conversation in the last weeks or months of my father's life. Just the, the one five-minute conversation he had with me where he told me he believed in me and then was so shy and upset by it, he ran out of the room like a small boy. You know, that means something. And, and you have this opportunity maybe to stand with this person in this unusual and open space and see if your compassionate witnessing could produce at least a version of that similar space. And I think... You know, the astrology supports that in a sense. Having been talking about Saturn, having led to this, it becomes the map becomes the context for the good trip. You know, that's beautiful. I love that. And I wanted to talk to you about the Pluto and Virgo generation today. Yeah. And um, to get into that, even just starting with what Pluto is, and, you know, we're practicing evolutionary astrology. I think you've taken, you know, I'm curious to hear like how you relate to evolutionary astrology, but when we're speaking of Pluto or starting a chart analysis with Pluto, what is that looking to in the person? Yeah, it's a super good question. I mean, it's a point of depth, isn't it? If you, if you look at the 1930s, following the discovery of Pluto, you have these enormous riptides occur through the human unconscious, the collective unconscious. You know, clearly, I think when you look at, say, Uranus and Pluto, and there are people out there that don't use the outer planets, but when you look at the discovery charts and the periods around the French and American revolutions with the Uranus discovery and, you know, the rise of national socialism, the Great Depression, huge political and social divides with the discovery of Pluto, it's obvious to me, like it, it was to Rudyard, that they just they tear through the pre-existing paradigm and they are enormously powerful influences. And in fact, in all the recent years of historical research that I've been doing with this researcher, the things that reoccur time and time again are major outer planet transits, Pluto, Uranus, Neptune, and surprisingly, the transiting nodes are just incredibly powerful time and time again in research. What are you doing in a natal chart when you look at Pluto? In some ways, you're looking at the depth orientation of the individual psychologically, that their core point of psychological holding. <clears throat> I phrased it as the deepest unconscious security before, you know, that which you're most gripped around, you're most in 
potential complex around, you know, has an immediate possibility because of its significance to you to be over, to be made over significant and problematic. So straight away, you're into the kind of possibility of compulsion or the core area where you could be manipulated or where you might try and unconsciously manipulate others because your identification is so strong. So if I'm a third house, Pluto or or even some aspects of Pluto and Virgo attached to the Mercury message. And we're having a conversation. I don't realize how, you know, psychologically important it is to me that you see things the same way as me. Otherwise I'm deeply challenged. And maybe then I can't handle what you're saying. I'm having a meltdown. So Pluto goes straight into that territory of the kind of deeper psyche orientation to reality and where we constitute our security. And I would argue it's a, it's a dropping down in terms of depth from moon level security. Moon level security is like the habit, the seat you had at a dinner table when you were a child, you know, the kind of things you like to eat or where you felt comfortable in the household or the kind of rhythms you have on a personal level. Pluto's like that. It's like the rhythms you have on a soul level where you've become attached in your soul orientation. Incredibly. So it's, a deep, yes. it's just freeing information to learn too. Like all this unconscious information that would otherwise be kind of like, I get an image a lot of like driving and being in the driver's seat versus being in the passenger seat with this unconscious part of you driving and not even knowing that that's happening. I find it super helpful with individuals. Many, many people who come to a reading with a problem about a relationship of their life who are addressing it on, if you like, a moon kind of level. You know, I'm personally involved or I have this personal feeling. It's the Pluto level, the figure in the backseat driving the car sometimes, or I use the metaphor of the wave, you know, the deeper unconscious ocean current, the deeper um, warming current underneath the surface waves that are holding people in certain placements in their life. And anything that helps you go into the background state, go into the editorial suite with people so that they can copy and paste other options perhaps, or cut in other editorial options for themselves is empowering potentially, isn't it? In, in terms of how they experience their entire life or their reality. And I think empowerment's crucial, isn't it? It's, and it's crucial in that generation, you know, because you could argue the Pluto and Virgo generation is in a crisis about empowerment, at least partially. Yeah, I was hearing Virgo in that copy and paste editorial suite yes, <laughs> image. Yes. So yes. when you describe Virgo like as an archetype, um, what are some of its core themes? I mean, I think personally the easiest way to relate to it is to understand what Leo is, and to understand Leo, you have to understand what Cancer is, in the sense that you're born at Aries in a pure instinctual reality, developmentally. You develop internal relationship to your own needs in Taurus, and what they call self-constancy, the feeling the small child has that they are real, even when the parent isn't present, which takes a long time to fully stabilize. And then the nascent development of language, Gemini, you know, intellectually labeling your environment, the language that increasingly comes in around two, three, four, five. And then it stabilizes within a sense of a personal self at cancer, like the ego self, if you like, in its conditioned reality, roughly around the time of the first sentence square. So Leo is the song of that self in the world. You know, you singing your creative song, like it's your moment on the stage, your American Idol moment or whatever. And Virgo is your self-analytical moment in the back room afterwards. 
you know, taking in the judge's comments, thinking about who am I? How well did that go? How authentically did I creatively actualize? What do other people think about it? Because it's all a precursor to Libra. It, Virgo is the transitional bridge between the Leo self healthily narcissistically expressing itself and the Libra desire for equality that others could be included within the song of myself and Virgo's the, the necessary crisis that precipitates sufficient self-analysis for that process to occur. The problem with Virgo is under stress that sufficient self-analysis can freak out into an abyss of excessive self-exploration. Uh, sounds so painful. <laughs> it is painful. I've been there. You know, I spent a large part of my teenage years in that space and it's not great. Yeah. 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 I'm well aware of the space too. Uh, I think even the process of, um, you know, I had an experience growing up of having my writing edited by so many people on this writing community. And I remember the first few times I got reviews, I would actually break into tears and write the person back and be like, I'm 12, like this, you know, and they're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're like oh. <laughs> and they would be like, oh, that's, that's sweet. Like you're doing okay. And I eventually became a lot more dispassionate about receiving criticism for my writing. Which I think is a remarkable, I mean, that's like a, principle of anti-fragility, isn't it? Like that idea of that Nicholas Nassim Taleb, you know, the, effectively like Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger in certain areas. You developed your writing immune system. And, you know, frequently, and there are, there are famous figures within our profession who don't edit, who don't have editors, who don't listen like that, and who even, you know, bind their own books or print their own books to avoid that very editorial process. Um, because it's so challenging. Whereas if you can develop it, you know, the soul speaks because it was so close to my heart and my work as a therapist. That was edited more times than any other piece of writing I've ever done. And it's the best piece of writing I've ever done. <laughs> you know, I read certain bits of it and I'm like, wow, this is really good. Who wrote this? Because it was more than me. Because it was like three really high quality editors on top of me went through that because I found it so difficult to articulate because I was so close to it my therapeutic work and my vision and the way I might, you know, blend it with astrology. I think you did a very valuable step, but yeah, obviously, I mean, I remember the first talks I gave in America. I mean, the second one I ever gave in Canada, the first time I spoke in North America was a talk on Pluto and Virgo. And I started it by saying, hi, my name's Mark Jones and I'm a Pluto and Virgo. Like it was a 12 step meeting, you know? Um, and, um, I would just, they would, the talks were good. They would, they would go well, but I would have forgotten two or three things. I would not use notes and I would have mentally prepared what I was going to say to a certain extent. And I would remember just a few minutes after finishing the thing I didn't say and huge, like abyss would open up inside a temptation to just reduce all the goodness that had happened in that talk to just this crushing sense of, I didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. And I had to learn to resist the temptation, you know, kind of step away from the brink. I mean, yeah, the way you're describing it, it sounds like the compulsive quality of self-criticism and yes. having to see that as an addiction, potentially, like anxiety and self-criticism. Exactly. The only 12-step program I, meeting I have ever gone to was in Sedona. And it was... Um, I stood up and I said, hi, my name's Mark Jones, and I'm addicted to believing the contents of my mind are real. 
It was a sort of <laughs> spiritual 12-step program. It was good. Um, I'm a last degree Pluto in Virgo in the ninth house, ruling the midheaven. And in a sense, my whole relationship to being able to articulate the vision I have into the world that we're talking about has been a process of being able to handle that space and not just, you know, I remember once on a bigger kind of like a radio show or a podcast or however we frame it back in the day, early days of the internet, sharing something about the spiritual experience I had and, you know, it feeling warm, getting on with the interviewer, feeling a good space, a nice person to talk to you like your good self. And then finishing the call and then just having this kind of on my own in my house, you know, I just shared that with whomever you know, kind of feeling. <laughs> and learning as an introvert, essentially, to deal with that. True. Yeah, I can so relate. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you can. Actually, I felt it. I felt it when I was sharing that with you, yeah. Yeah. So when we're talking about Pluto and Virgo as like a generation or as a signature, um, can you speak more to what the character of that is? So you have this on a collective level, this process I'm talking about where in personal psychological development, you reach really what is an achievement at cancer of a personal self. I don't think you just get a personal self. To get a healthy personal self, even in early childhood, is actually an achievement. It's not just a given. And frequently people don't make it, you know, and they need a lot of attention later on. And then the, the Leo expression of that personal self, that creative outpouring into the world. Well, on a collective level, the Virgo crisis around that transition comes into effect. You know, Pluto transitions into Virgo in the mid late 50s, 56, 57, and goes on till 71, 72, depending on some retrogradation, you know, end of Leo and then early Libra in 72. And, um, you know, this, this period, post war period, the, the, the burgeoning paranoia of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the, you know, the only time in the world where the two keys were in the two red boxes. They weren't turned to open up the codes for missile launch, for mutually assured destruction. We, the keys were, were placed in the thing in the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's how close we were. We were minutes away from full-scale nuclear war in that period. And this kind of crisis mentality. And also this feeling really that Pluto and Virgo questions the Leo soul hero archetype. I think even of, you know, my researcher and I were just looking at this this morning, thinking we're talking about Pluto and Virgo later today, and Khrushchev's famous speech occurs with the Pluto in the last degrees of Leo just prior to transitioning into Virgo, you know, on the cult of personality and its consequences, a secret speech given, decrying the, the, the kind of heroic image of Stalin and everything he stood for that began the change in the Soviet Union towards, you know, a slightly more progressive, slightly less tyrannical leadership. It's almost a perfect uh, exposition of the, the last moments of Leo descending then into Virgo, the criticism of the sole heroic figure and, and his untarnished kingly image, you know, which was clearly non-deserving for Stalin. I think, the Pluto and Virgo generation, and, and the 60s, of course, the crisis of the 60s, I think we romanticize the 60s often in astrology, not realizing what a genuine crisis in many ways it was for culture. How was it a crisis? I don't know exactly, I guess, but, mm. you know, I, I, I've, I've romanticized the 60s, right? I was at college, and I'm with my friend, and we're reading about Leary and whatever, and we're like, right, how do we get the right dose? How do we do it like they did it, you know? 
And that was life-changing. So I romanticize the 60s, but I'm thinking of books like Gary Lackman's excellent book, The Dark Side of the 60s, where even in the Haight-Ashbury heyday, when the first few weeks all these golden children are arriving, just a matter of weeks later, it's like sexual predation, hard drug pushing, all the kind of cronies descend on the area and start pushing this other agenda. It's socially unraveling, even as it's, you know, even in its absolute heyday, it's just a step away from a kind of darkness. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember being at the Haight-Ashbury here in San Francisco. Yes. And I was like, I'm going to smoke a little bit and go find some clothes and it's going to be fun. But I ended up just having like a bad trip. And I yes. saw these like windows of the apartments upstairs and just felt this kind of vision of crisis or like bad things happening there. I was like, I didn't mean to go to the Haight-Ashbury and have a bad trip, but I'm certainly not the first <laughs> who did. There was just loads of them, weren't there? And, and some of the most heroic, some of the most angelic people were the people setting up little centers with, you know, liters of orange juice and vitamin C doses and, you know, attempts to bring people down and talk them through it, through the, the mental health crisis. You know, the sheer number of people that under that degree of psychoactivation went into mental health crises or were just personally, socially, and sexually vulnerable to manipulation and predation from others. And this idea that a lot of the 60s free love, that there was an awful lot of coercion and, and you know, undigested social mores from the previous generation still applying in distorted forms, even amongst the, the relative freedom. Yeah, that kind of... Um fast forwards to me of thinking of like the popularity of crime shows and that vision of like there always being something to be afraid of in terms yes. of being predated upon if that's the yes. the way to say yeah. it yeah well and i have i have conflicted thinking about this because you, you see it with the occult don't you you see that certain magical principles are only ever presented in the media as like horror film and that's sad in a way it's just a complete misunderstanding of the, the potential liberating power of certain practices at the same time in in the flower child vision there was this primary naivete i, I think about the, the the number of damaged people or the number of people that want to hurt other people or take advantage of them in the world and, and you could say that's a common thing for people who spiritually open people whose heart opens whether it be through psychedelics or you know the krishna movement or you know, their religious or spiritual unfoldment, or they find a teacher, or they're just open by being in love. There's this naivete that tends to accompany that, that like, all, all the world would be like this. We should just put psychedelics in the water, or if everyone fell in love, or if everyone just listened to this band, or this piece of music, or had that reaction to this thing that opened me up, we'd all just live in harmony. And of course, it misses the fact that others are living in a completely different reality. Others are living in this sort of purgatorial or even hellish realm where everything is threat, everything is violence, and it misses the, the uh, articulation of just the rainbow grades of consciousness that different peoples are in at different times on the planet. Yeah, I hear discernment in what you're saying, and I've, I feel that the Pluto and Virgo generation is learning discernment, and there's this phenomenon with Pluto that is empowering and also disturbing at times depending on the context that some of the things that we're here to learn are where we feel the most challenged so if someone is learning discernment i think that that crisis that you just described goes along with that lesson do you know what i mean 
Well, I think this discernment point is really important too, isn't it? And that that would be, in some ways, discrimination, discernment, and then the ability to act in a considered way in response would be the most constructive outcome of the Pluto-Virgo mentality. That would be how to sidestep that chasm where you could just fall into your own internal cycles of thought. And you see it, you know, this generation are being asked a lot right now, aren't they, in a way, that the Pluto, Saturn and Capricorn trining back and the Jupiter and Capricorn trining back to this generation, asking for more. A generation that Pluto and Leo was not uncomfortable going out into the world and making a big impact, you know. It was, yeah. it, was the, it was their thing. If it, in many ways, it was like, please tone it down. You know? um, but the Pluto and Virgo generation, not so much. And yet there's this, there's this need, isn't there? There's this need to feel that this different way of doing things or this cleanup operation or this more discriminating, discerning, active momentum can rise to maturation. Saturn, Pluto, Capricorn, Jupiter, Capricorn, have a mature vision of expression in the world. And that's an antidote to... The victimization and hurt that not feeling that you can act in a discerning fashion when you see things wrong in the world can bring about it because that's what I see a lot of this almost um, hysterical sense of the world gone awry and people feeling like they want to do something about it but because you know not so secretly they feel disempowered it quickly spins over into just cataloging what's wrong you know the constant analysis of what's wrong with leaders or governments or infrastructure. How do you see people breaking out of that? I mean, to me, it's all about the the, the danger of cataloging what's wrong all the time. I'm, I'm not trying to have a false kind of ideal here where you don't recognize what's wrong, but the I, all the energy goes into cataloging the endless ills of society and what's wrong. Like, like the hysteria. I, I, I get that liberal America doesn't like its current you know, leadership. I get that. But the hysteria around it, the elevation of that to, you know, it's worse than Hitler. or it, It's just, A, such a profound misunderstanding of history that it, you know, beggars belief if you're a European to make that comparison. It's a sad comparison to make, an hysterical one. But at the same time, it's like... People are truly threatened in the world, aren't they? I think there's two things going on. One, Capricorn asks for mature psychology, not just action. Action that promotes maturation. So there's this feeling of needing to have things you can do in your world to make the world, to kind of embody the vision of the world that you want to see. But people get hurt, don't they? They get hung up. Why the fixation on leadership or the fixation on certain cronies in power or whatever? Uh, yeah, yeah. I I see something within Virgo and Pisces of being yes. super overwhelmed by large forces. Yeah, and having to see the self as so tiny in comparison to that, which yes, taken to an extreme is a really disempowering way to live. When there may actually be small, impactful actions that would have a ripple effect. I really believe that. I really believe that. And I think Steiner said it, and uh, I was reading a French historian who said something similar to Steiner, but Steiner was like, the world we see now was dreamed by the preceding generations. And and we're dreaming now what the world will be, which is very kind of Virgo Pisces in its own way. You know, wars are dreamed first. 
between the collective unconsciousness of different people or constructive actions are dreamed first. You know, uh, creativity is dreamed on some level first and then comes into being through consistent action. And I, I think it's a, a crucial point because I don't know, leaders don't do as much as people think they do. Things don't quite change as much. It's never, you know, the balances and checks of the Western world keep a lot. There's people who could write in now in a flurry of just all the examples and the evidence, the cataloging. And I know it. You know, I sit there, I read the papers, I read Facebook. But I can tell when it becomes hysterical, when the cataloging has reached this point where the person is suspended in their own life and they can't act. And they carry on, instead of acting, they just carry on reading more, cataloging more of what's wrong in the world. That's actually nothing to do with the agency that they have with their little corner of the world. In some ways, I'm talking about something more intimate that perceived perhaps from a Piscean viewpoint of sacred love, your little corner of the world means everything, you know, or like that idea in the Torah that if you save one life, you save the world. It's like everything matters how you talk to your child matters, how you tend your garden matters, how you love a friend when they're down matters. It all matters. It's all witnessed. It's all how your intimate heart displays its fidelity to cosmic love or not, moment by moment. There's such a beautiful conscientiousness to Virgo that you're pointing to. And I yes. think that part of it comes down to the cosmology that people are operating within too, um, of how do you envision the universe in such a way that your small actions have an impact on the whole. And if you can't see that, then of course one would be overwhelmed and feel. Brilliantly put. And I think it's philosophical, psychological, and metaphysical visions that empower the intimate, that empower the ordinary the extraordinary nature of ordinary life, the everyday heroism of parents around the world getting up with sick children in the night or nurses pulling a, a double shift to take care of terminally ill patients. You know, just the heroism of showing up in the imperfect expression of yourself and the world in order to stand as close to your vision of the perfect as you can muster with enough coffee or waking yourself up or, you know, affirmations in the mirror. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Whatever it takes. Yeah. Yeah. For years when I was young, I did the Kabbalistic cross morning and night inside myself. You know, I tried to say like inside me could manifest at least a little drop of the principle of Christ or, or, you know, the, the idea of Tiferet, the idea of there being a loving heart or a solar heart or a solar angel at the heart of reality that would empower with fire and love, empower your life, whatever it is, whatever it is that relates you to it. Because the path of powerlessness, it strikes me There's some wonderful work by a therapist in New Mexico called Donald Calshed, who wrote a book called Archetypal Defense of the Spirit and a book called Trauma and the Soul, both of which are excellent, even just reading sections of them, even if you ignore all the summary of therapeutic literature in parts of them where he recognizes that when people have been very hurt, traumatized, parts of them can split off and just scan reality all the time for where people are off. And you see it all the time on, on sort of social media or functions, this kind of punitive, super-egoic element entering into the social discourse. You know, some comic was going to present the Oscars, but eight years ago, he 
slagged someone off drunk on Twitter or he was inappropriate. You know, he was socially offensive in some way that was recorded because social media isn't like having a private conversation at a party anymore. It's, you know, on public record. We're just, we're just like, we've all become Puritans at times looking for where the person's gone wrong and now socially shaming them so that they can't do this or that. But I, I find that a, there's a lack of forgiveness or understanding that we might all make mistakes, but also that there is this hypervigilant trauma scanning going on, that there's actually a collective trauma kind of egregore or thought form growing out of the collective at this point that's so freaked out by certain ways that authority expresses itself in the world or, you know, the apparent challenges of Western civilization from the climate to energy resources to different you know, social justice causes of various kinds. It's like we're so upset by it sometimes that we don't realize caring is one thing. Creating this superegoic, hypervigilant trauma protector is when Calshed traces it, in particular in the book Archetypal Defense of the Spirit, it produces this very negative, secretly punitive force that will even try and destroy those who wish to help you. And that's what Kalsha discovered in his deeper psychotherapy with traumatized people. And I think it's something we need to extrapolate some of the deeper understanding from psychotherapy into the way the collective energy responds to certain larger events. Because, uh, you know, people are being floored by a combination of what happened in their own personal life and just reading the news, just following the news, is seeing people laid up in bed for days or unable to face the world or believe in anything. It's certainly the feeling I get at times. And, you know, I'd love to feel like, I don't know, in your work, I thought you put it beautifully. You know, my ideal in some ways is to, is to try to say to people, your tiny world, even if it's just your room in your apartment that you never go out of, matters. Matters even if you're there on your own, just watching your favorite show endlessly on Netflix. doesn't matter. You're real. Life's real. Even even the way you feel when you're watching that show is real <laughs> and matters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is interesting. This is so insightful. Um, around the time that I was practicing evolutionary astrology for the first time, yes. I was also studying law of attraction teachings and like Abraham yes. Hicks, which is a very Virgo Pisces um, thing because it's all about subtly aligning yourself towards a vision of reality or a feeling state that you would like to have. So instead of focusing on what's wrong or what you're upset about, subtly shifting your focus towards what feels good and doing that so habitually that you change your reality. Um, And so I was learning about that and Saturn and karma at the same time. So I took it upon myself as an experiment of, you know, what could happen if I created better feeling states in my consciousness more often without the whole spiritual bypassing thing and pretending I'm okay when I'm not, but actually like reconditioning my inner world Yes, and reality shifted around me. It's a very real force. And I think also that the hypervigilance that's happening in the collective, um, that was really poignant how you described that. And it feels like a very unconscious force. And I feel like more points towards the benefit of individual healing for the collective. Like the more that people address their unconscious complexes. So profound, both those points. And so I can say, I heartily agree. I mean, I think that was Jung's 
point. I increasingly feel that Jung was the towering genius at the heart of the 20th century and that he laid, certainly if you read the classic scholar Peter Kingsley's you know, contentious work on the Red Book, Catafalque, he lays out clearly that Jung is a visionary in a, in a lineage of prophets and visionaries stretching back through the Gnostic period. I mean, I think Jung was saying, you know, to find the Christ within almost really, to, to, to find the inner meaning of what seemed to leave his pastor father, his you know, religious father who couldn't offer anything, and to find it truly from within and risk individuation, risk true psychological deepening, to truly become autonomous, to truly not see yourself as a conditioned series of reflections of others' responses to you or society's responses to you, and that's a truly profound path. So I think psychological deepening is an antidote. Jung said in The Undiscovered Self, you know, a million zeros don't make one. The key is to be one, to be an individual, to be true, not a statistic, not a mass figure, not so many millions said this or voted this or did this, to extricate yourself from that in whatever way. And then the other point, I mean, I could talk the subtleties of, say, things like the secret or law of manifestation, you know, the flaws in them, the problems in them, but the fact that they also point to a profound truth. And so just to summarize briefly, my view of that profound truth is that the self with a capital S, the most dynamic part of your identity includes an electromagnetic field aspect, what Aurobindo, Sri Aurobindo called the psychic being, which is the manifestation aspect of your spirit towards your personal self, the kind of radiatory love from your deepest self to your personal self is experienced as the psychic being, as he called it. And the psychic being has an electromagnetism. Your, your deeper self has an electromagnetism. It's like, what color is your soul? Or, or the, you know, you're a rainbow of a particular hue and you're actually affecting the world in that way. So the manifestation teachings, they point to the power of the electromagnetism of the self because the, the nuclear we actor at the core of your heart mind is so powerful that whatever you put in front of it it will manifest a version of that into reality onto the cave wall if you if we want to misquote plato slightly <laughs> you know so the electromagnetic self is so powerful that what you hold in mind continually will have some degree of manifestation potential in your life now it's not as simple as you just create your own reality because there are collective and karmic restrictions and limitations they're pre-existing impact of mass human movements as well as your own individual unconscious karma that you don't understand fully from your whatever you want to call it past lives i don't call them past lives because i'm not sure how it works i call it soul memory that the chart is a symbol of soul memory the the that which you were carrying when you were born so in the sense those manifestation teachings they point people towards the electromagnetism of the self perhaps not as deeply as they could and often it's about in the great spiritual marketplace of America, it's about money. And, you know, I manifested my first million at this point and what have you, you know. Um, but I do agree that how can you truly create, how can you be your full rainbow self if everything's a negative critique of the world around you all the time, if it's only that? Someone like Charles Eisenstein is trying to address that in the way he looks at climate, for example, and the climate emergency, that the hysteria and the crisis mentality endlessly placed, you know, against the power of the human spirit is problematic in itself, even if there are real challenges to face. 
Right. So I think you're in a very, very interesting area when you, when you talk about that and, and, well, and you found in your own life. So, so when you started to change, can you describe the change more? What happened to you? Yeah. So I started to notice the resistance that came up towards positive thinking and the absolute addiction of seeing things in a certain way and how, how much I had to grapple with changing my mindset. So there was that level of it. Um, and it was also, I feel things in a very embodied way. It's like a moon and Taurus thing, perhaps, but I think everyone can access this where if you think about a concept and close your eyes and just think about it and visualize it, you'll start to get sensations. And so I noticed that the more that I'm running loops around anxiety, the more that I'm creating a chemical experience in my body that only produces more anxious imagery. So if I played around with fantasy images, you know, pretending that something was real that wasn't and noticing that it created a real physiological response in my actual body, it's like, what's the power of that? Like people, um, you know, there's a like antidepressants or psychological drugs. These are designed to change people's chemistry, but to what agency can we change our own chemistry? So I go far out with it. <laughs> it's pretty powerful. Well, but I mean, I, I wrote this paper on the placebo effect and I was at one point I was trying to create this movement like to rebrand the placebo effect because I think it's unfair to to call what is effectively the psychic regenerative power of the soul to evidence through belief and and internal reprogramming it's a, it, to access its own healing power that's really what the placebo effect is and to call it the placebo effect because it annoys you in your double bind drug trial is an unfortunate you know restriction of its true power and in a, in, a, in effect you're trying to undermine the placebo effect whereas in, in, a, in actuality we'd be better off amplifying it and turning to people and saying wow your inner self is so powerful that if you believe you can get better in this kind of way your chances of getting better increase you know just in the depression stakes about 37 percent or something you know that that book the emperor's new drugs by urban hirsch professor urban hirsch showed that placebo is almost as effective as the best antidepressant medication it's only one or two percent difference just pure placebo just being given a pill and believing uh, can turn depression around for starters so i think it's super powerful and it and to me we reduce what's effectively a power within the soul now and then at the same time you have people who critique this as if you shouldn't be doing that you know because it's not taking the trauma in the world seriously enough and there are people that even go around trying to debunk spiritual teachers because they've said something like you know, perhaps you should be more compassionate in this situation. And they, and they argue, no, you should be more politically agitated. And then they try and bring down that teacher from that perspective. Now, of course, this is an, sure an argument that's run throughout history, you know, because many spiritual teachers have argued quite conservative thoughts in terms of the existing times, you know, just quietly develop yourself spiritually. A Jakob Bohem, you know, a shoemaker, just get a simple job and, and develop spiritually and, and don't interrupt your inner work versus the kind of revolutionary zeal kind of angle. And, you know, I'm in the spiritual camp fairly firmly, whilst also believing that there may be action towards social change of a certain kind. But that was the power of Dr. King for me, or the power of a Gandhi, was that it blended the two, you know, that social change can be impacted from a genuine spiritual connection rather than the kind of violent polarizing and certainly the revolutionary idea and I'm just feeling so over Karl Marx right now. I can't tell you. I don't know. You know, I've looked into it a lot. 
I've looked at the charts. I, I've, I've tried to study the guy he was when he showed up in London and all his agitations, but I just don't agree with that worldview. And, and in my spiritual heart, it just seems like to turn everything into a power dynamic over other people and, and a violent one at that just does not seem how the world really is in the deeper recesses of my heart. And I, and, and the final thing I might say to that part of you that began to read yourself physiologically and David Hawkins is like former psychiatrist and strange consciousness researcher in his eighties that influenced me in Arizona. I mean, he pretty much said, you can feel the truth when you learn. Yeah, you can, you can feel when something's more true. I give a trivial example with a friend, my friend who'd had a privileged life and then his father left and he didn't go to university, went to university later in life and absolutely aced it, got the highest mark in a photography degree. And at the end of acing it, the very project that aced it more than any, he turned to me in a bar with my wife and him with his girlfriend at the time saying, oh yeah, I'm going to go back and revisit that project and just add a few bits, tinker a bit. I think I could have improved it even more. Got the highest mark. In the, Is in he put on Virgo too? Yes. Pluto Virgo conjunct Mars in the first house, ruling the North Node, the Mars. And I could feel it like he, as he spoke, I could feel like he'd opened a, a door to a musty, stale room. And I said to him, don't do it, pal. Don't do it. It's just, it's a retrograde step. And he did it. He went out camping to take the shots a couple of days. He didn't take another picture again for a year after that. It was so not the right thing to do. It actually affected his development in that art, art form. And I could feel it. As soon as he told me, I could feel this crushing sense of the weight of the past on that decision. So you can even feel it in others and you can feel it in yourself. You can feel when you're being real. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. yeah. I make a lot of my decisions by feeling how they feel and see if they give me the chills or not and yeah. run with it. Um, I definitely remember though, when I was younger, like I, I always have big ideas that I don't necessarily act on all of them, but I would share them with my friends and get so many responses. It was overwhelming and people being like, no, don't do that. That's silly. Um, and then going inward and becoming more reflective of my internal biosphere, basically, you know, and I feel like there's something about Virgo that's about purification. So if you're bombarded with a bunch of messages and you haven't been able to sort through them yet, it's harder to know what your truth is, I think. Exactly. Well, it's a kind of internal Mercury, isn't it? I think Gemini is like an external Mercury. And with Gemini, you want all the chatter and the talk and the ideas. But then at Virgo, you want to begin that discernment process, that internal act of discrimination. And I think really that's where you draw in Sagittarius. You make an unconscious Jupiter assumption. You know, what is the most useful? What fits my bigger picture? Uh, what my vision of truth, if you like. And Virgo then becomes the melting ground, you know, the introverted analytical process. Because, you know, frankly, in most points in creativity, if you're really serious about your creativity and you want to do a powerful project, just talk to hardly anyone about it. Maybe no one. You know, if, if it's the real thing and you just want to do it, it's so hard to maintain that logos of power and truth inside you about your work, your creative work, that I don't risk social interaction or, a, or I'm not looking for editorial outside of initial copy edits. Say if I'm writing something important, I'm not looking for a kind of, oh, what do you think of my idea kind of response until way later down, until I've really got something through. 
because otherwise it's too much sense. yeah too much to take in and it starts to deflect you in. and the internal mercury starts to bounce off all the other voices you're internalizing and when i see pluto and virgo in sort of trauma signatures or under stress i remember working with a lady with sun venus pluto and virgo in the seventh all conjunct the sun ruling the south node in leo and the mother had just been so critical and so undermining for so long it was like she was saturated with broken messages internal fragments where the mother had just dropped the response the sister once had brought in flowers for the mother my daughter likes to do it the snow drops her out she plucks the white heads off them well the sister of this woman when they were children brought a flower into the mother and she said you killed the flower no thank mm -hmm. you so she destroyed that flower that flower will never grow again it was that to the child and you see virgo in these kinds of stresses often it's people who've had to listen to messages from others that weren't really true, but that they have accumulated over time, like some intravenous drip of verbal salty toxin. Yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> I, had, I had some version of it in my own childhood. Yeah, people yeah. can't see because there's a conversation, but I just got the like negative chills. Yeah, <laughs> such yeah. a difficult image. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It is. And it takes a long time. People... People are like tree rings. You know, the chart is like a map of your tree rings in a way. And if you kind of psychically slice people open, <laughs> you can see the years of restricted growth held in the tree rings. And those kinds of messages, they are hard ones to get out. People need a place where they can vent them, but not just passively vent them. They have to have that passive time where you just listen, but then they need help, the discernment part. Once people have vented enough, all the negative messages they've accumulated in their life, they then need help separating them out because people need really the negative side of Pluto and Virgo is like a judge and a jury, you know, prosecution, mm -hmm. defense, court case. And it goes on forever and it never gets resolved. You know, there's an endless appeal, an endless, you know, like some of these bigger court cases that go on. What you really need is that helpful context, a meaningful ally. And to finally just say, yeah, the courts ruled this. Yeah, those, those messages weren't true. That was just your mother being a bitch or whatever. That was her own unresolved loss about her life. Yeah, I understand it affected you because that was developmental. So that's bound to have affected you because you're loyal to your mother because you were a kid. Yeah, but it's not true now. And, and how can we discern so that you, you never just go into that cul-de-sac or get trapped there ever again? Can we, can we pick out the, the pebbles in the shoes, the things weighing you down yeah this um reminds me of the like the virgo pisces axis you have the imperfection of virgo the experience of imperfection the organizing around an ideal and the other side is like what's the ideal or what's this heavenly place what is the perfect ideal childhood that we've fallen from from having childhood traumas and how do like what is the I've heard you speak to this before of like this impact of the, the fall. Yes. And yeah. I cause I, that. well, because I think even in the ideal child, cause the, what's the ideal childhood, a loving one, a loving one with parents who are capable of sacrifice at the crucial times. It's the one deal in life where it's completely sacrificial. It's the one type of relationship parent child where parents do all the giving and the child is all the receiving. And that's the way it's meant to be. Children do love you, 
And in the few magical moments they give that love back, it's incredibly powerful. But there's a lot of parental giving. It really is stressful. And even within that, in quotes, perfect childhood of good enough love and sufficient enough sacrifice, the child will still be failed. You know, they because children are little narcissistic bundles of endlessly wanting. You know, my daughter freaks out when you take a knife off her, you know, which, you know, when she was like 14 months old or something, grabbing a knife or a pair of scissors, which she could have very severely damaged herself with. Children will hate you for protecting them because they don't understand. My daughter will fight you if you try and change her clothes or change her messy diaper. Children treat it as an imposition. Why are you doing this to me now? Why? And they're like little crazy kings and queens of their world, you know, that don't want this uh, despot coming in and taking their diaper off, even though it's messy as hell and, you know, you're doing them a profound favor, really. So children will always resist in that way. And in a certain sense, therefore, children need to be failed so that they can pick themselves up and find something in themselves, find something redemptive, like the young writer in you at 12 taking quasi-adult criticism and learning after the initial sickness to toughen up around it and be more effective as a communicator later in life. I mean, who's to say you'd even be here where you are right now without that, you know? Yeah. And it's like, um, so even in the most idyllic circumstance, and I think this is a fantasy you have to break through, I, I think there was that moral psychologist from New York University, Jonathan Haidt, done some excellent work on this, things like the, the idea of the coddling of the American mind. But parenting has swung so far back from some of the bad old days in some cases. I mean, clearly there are just people who have shitty parents. Yeah. And I, I work with a lot of those people. There's a lot of people with very loving parents where it's gone almost the other way, where their little angel never really plays outside on their own or ever encounters a, a kind of true stress. And of course, that's just as dangerous in some ways, or, it, or it's subtly dangerous. It's not as dangerous as a traumatic childhood because that can destroy people, but it certainly can create this lack of that anti-fragility quality, that, that sense that my immune system gets stronger because it was exposed to certain things. Because the adult world, years down the line, isn't going to treat them like their precious little angel every moment. You know, and that's just something really the, the kind of process I, I was reading Jung's biography by um, Deirdre Bear, who's a literary critic and historian. And, you know, it was funny because Jung so transcended so many things, but he was also still annoyed when this one teacher accused him of plagiarism early on. He was a son of a poor pastor. He walked 90 minutes one way to school at 16, sometimes without socks, just a pair of bare shoes. Sometimes he'd only had a glass of milk in the morning, a glass of warm milk, because they had so little money or food. And he would walk 90 minutes one way to school. And in this very posh school with kids from affluent backgrounds, he did this paper one time and the class, you know, he's telling this story. Even later in life, it bugged him. The teacher gives out all the grades to everyone and then comes to this last paper and he hasn't called out Young's name. And he's like, well, I would give this an A, but it's clearly not the work of this student. He's clearly copied it from another source. And he just throws Young's paper to the ground. And Young was outraged. Young was profoundly hurt. It wasn't plagiarism because Young would go on to be... 
So it's super powerful, but it bugged, it hurt him. You know, even in his, even in his old age, he would tell that story with the same sense of like, you know, um, because these things matter, don't they? There's nothing like these things shape you. The first time you encounter injustice profoundly shapes you. I remember this exam at school and going up to my humanities teacher, my history and geography teacher at the time, I was about 14 or 15 and saying, sir, you marked my paper, but you didn't turn over the page. I wrote a whole other page. You didn't turn over in the book. You know, I carried on the answer. And he went, life's unfair. And didn't, didn't mark it higher. Oh. <laughs> I just thought that's a very trivial example, but it's like people, people remember what hurt them in certain points. And yet if they can summon sufficient psychic energy to that hurt, that's the grain of sand in the oyster, isn't it? That's the, that's the moment. Yeah. There was, when I was on that writing website, someone took it upon themselves to anonymously send me a series of emails, like analyzing me yes. uh, because they thought that I was too addicted to external gratification, that I cared about how people saw my writing and the rewards I got. And then they said that I was truly someone who was an adult posing as a child on the internet. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> being like very offended, but also flattered. And I, I was going to say, there's a weird compliment in there, really. Yeah. Yeah. I had told my mom and grandpa about it. And my grandpa still brings it up to this day of like a point of pride that someone thought I was posing as an adult when I was a kid. I think but, that's cool. But isn't it interesting? Yeah. I Whenever, remember, I mean, it was a yeah. wounding experience, but it doesn't still bother me. But it was definitely shocking at that age. Well, and these things are real and they stop people. I've, I've worked with a lot of people at the cusp of setting up some kind of astrological identity in the world or some kind of astrological counseling practice in the world. And you'd be surprised how many people it's literally this, it's the memory or the lady who uh, was asked to read her poem to the class because the teacher liked it so much. So it's even a good memory, but then some, you know, bored, jealous little girl who didn't get asked to read her poem starts laughing and calling her names at the end of it. And she cries and has a meltdown. Even the good memories can be taken or they're reaching out. The number of adults that fear the response from the world and it stops people doing things. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. True. It's remarkable. And it, it is incredible because people's feedback sometimes obviously reveals more about them than it does the person they're feeding back about. And I've had strange examples of that. I've had examples where people have even forgotten the primary part of what I was teaching and not mentioned that, which referred to the very thing they're saying, and you didn't include this. And it's like the whole central part of the class was that. It's just amazing because if people are triggered, they don't even hear you say the thing that they were looking for because they can't even take it in. And that's the difference between simply hearing or being present in a room and actually listening, actually having some open channel where you can take it in or reflect two very yeah. different things. It sounds important to, I mean, Virgo and Pisces are both sensitive archetypes. Virgo is sensitive to these, this, all this different information and being able to go ahead and do the thing. And it's like an Aries quincunx or Aries in conjunct to just take the action or be, put yourself out there. But also that the in conjunct, if you think about it, Aries to Virgo, Aries to Scorpio, they're both a crisis. Virgo is a crisis of the self, Leo, before relationships, and Scorpio is a crisis of the relational self to its truth, 
Sagittarius. And in a way, you can understand Scorpios by understanding there's a hidden Virgo issue deep down in, in the, in the self-hatred somewhere, in the self-immolation crisis that Scorpios can get themselves into. There's a kind of refracted Virgo crisis at the heart. But the inconjunct, it seems to me, is summarized by that. It's the humility. It's the, the humbling the self before the feedback, because that's what really rose above. These things may have hurt your development narcissistically, but your creative diamond, if you like, was bigger than someone taking a pop at you like that. Or maybe you even saw some of the truth in what they were saying. You know, that's the other thing. The diamond can come in and even take the hurtful thing <laughs> yeah. and take something good from it. And the larger diamond inside you is bigger than just the personal person who's annoyed that someone's... It happens all the time. You'd be amazed how often the apparent negative feedback... I, I received an email recently and it's like, oh, um, the readings seem to go so well. Why have I got this email? And I just made the surprise decision because I don't always have time to just take in a, just a free 10 or 15 minutes on Skype with this person. It wasn't negative at all. They just wanted the next step to be as formalized. As soon as that was just communicated, it's incredible. They were just so happy. It was feedback that appeared negative, but was actually a partially happy person pushing for the total experience with their Venus and Leo on the North Node. And, um, and I was lucky enough in a way to just have some open time to follow it because I, because I can just imagine there'd be others who just shut down around it. It's like, well, that, that, that reading went so well. I gave you that time. I, it's so easy when feedback includes a challenge to go to that place. <clears throat> and then at other times you just have to be bold. Sometimes people attack and you can just see it's their disorder. It's their psychological issue. And then I think you just have to be bold even when it's nasty. And sometimes it's nasty yeah, uh, because if yeah. you're doing something, if you're doing something powerful in the world, there will be those people that get freaked out. Totally. And if then you're present way, on social yeah. media. Yes. Yes, exactly. If you're working with a lot of people, like it's just, and, and that's where you have to have confidence. That's where in a sense it's false humility. It's an inverted narcissism to take someone who's obviously unwell in a certain way or triggered and take their attack on you seriously. In a way, it's inverted narcissism, I would argue, or a kind of false humility, or it's a way that, say, the Virgo crisis contains unresolved, undigested Leo energy. Because in a way, once you know, I mean, I'm talking about, a, a, for example, a feedback on a talk I gave once, where it was like, um, well, there's no need to go into it all, but just, you know, the, the central criticism was... The, the central example addressed the central criticism. They, they missed out in their, in their delineating the talk and what it was missing. They missed out the central section of the talk, which was all about what they said was missing. It's as if, it's as if they just blanked out for 20 minutes. And that's what can happen if they've already gone into a distorted response or people that clearly admire you, but then it triggers something in them. That's, that's what happens to me sometimes when people are into my work and then they can't bear that in some way or they, they want to be closer to it or whatever. And then they trip out to the negative side of that. So sometimes it's the people that are going around the conference telling everyone about Mark Jones and the reading they have who a week later are actually crazy. That's the, the pedestaling yeah. problem. Yes. I can feel into that too. If, if someone's interacting with me in a way that I feel like I'm being pedestaled, there's a hidden danger in that because... I know that unless I'm going to pour energy into maintaining that image, I'm probably not if I'm busy <laughs> or like, yes. you know, I just know that that's not authentic relating. There's that danger of 
falling out of grace from that person's perspective, even though exactly. you just didn't do anything. You literally just didn't fit. Well, because image. because both are false. Because the pedestal's false, the, the non-pedestal, the apparent fall from the pedestal, none of them exist. They're all like false conditions. They're all like dualisms that just evaporate in the non-dual truth of just your being you and you being the expression of you in the cosmos. So in a sense, all of it's just a show. And that's why, in, in a sense, the most dedicated Virgo, but if you think about it, Virgo is this transition from the self-development of the early science to the relational world. Well, Pisces is a transition too, from the, the whole world of humanity, the intimate relationships of Libra into Scorpio, the kind of faith-based relationships or, or law of a society, Sagittarius into Capricorn, to like the collective body of humanity itself at Aquarius. Pisces is like a break from all of that. You know, I, I truly feel that, you're, that the core of one's being is a diamond or, or a flame that was bestowed upon you by the grace of the divine. That is my person. You know, when I have gone into my deepest experiences of reality, I have seen the light that was bestowed by the divinity of the creation. And that transcends the collective body of humanity. And it, can, it transcends any pedestal or any fall from any pedestal. It is both pre and post fall. Or it is, you know, I guess in its ultimate sense, it's that which was unborn, that which is neither born nor dying. You know, there is a truth that transcends whether you're great at this or not great at this. It, it, it kind of, so when you live your life with that truth as your witness, if someone places you on a pedestal and then decides a week later to throw rotten fruit at you and tell everyone you're just a shit, it's, you know, it's distasteful. You know, <laughs> uh, I don't enjoy it, but at the same time, it's not really affecting where you really answer to if you've decided to place your trust in the deepest reality that you've opened your heart and mind to. Well said. So, Mark, um, what do you see as some of the contributions to society that come from the Pluto and Virgo? generation very good question catalyzed or altered yeah that's super interesting i i, I don't have a complete thought on it I, i've got some i think the therapeutic movements mm. i think therapeutic movements have gone through an enormous transition i think it gets buried in academia sometimes and i was reading this excellent book on post-traumatic growth and it's really fascinating this Bauminster, this social psychologist who's part of this book on post-traumatic growth, it really emerged as a concept in, in the mid-90s with the Neptune-Uranus in Capricorn conjunction, which, of course, would have trined the Pluto and Virgo generation. And it was the conjunction that had a big impact on me. My moon Venus in Capricorn had Neptune and Uranus on it uh, during a whole kind of awakening period for me. Um, I think these kinds of concepts... That, that the modern therapy movement, the addition of neuroscience, neurobiology, the work of people like Dan Siegel, um, you know, integrative neurobiologists looking at all these different therapeutic films and then linking to trauma movements like Bessels van der Kolk and all these different trauma movements and this understanding of post-traumatic growth as well as post-traumatic stress, this linking of the therapeutic movement with uh, a breakthrough area in neuroscience and clinical psychology is super interesting. I mean, I think it's a bit materialist. Sometimes it misses the spiritual point for me, but sometimes it's super open to it. I think that's very linked. 
to that Neptune, Uranus and Capricorn trining that Pluto Virgo, that mid 90s shift and where some of the Pluto Virgo generation were growing up around that time and making those contributions, research contributions. I just have to make this sad point about academia. This book on post-traumatic growth is good. I'm super interested in post-traumatic growth. And it's the dullest work ever to read because you can't say a sentence without a parenthesis citing five other writers, which just destroys readability, doesn't it? The a- academia has just reached this point where it's so self-referential, it's almost impossible to read. Um, I think therapeutic movements, I-, I think... You know, the initial impetus of Freud and Jung has really moved on into all sorts of other directions, some of which are very, very useful. And, I, and I'm still surprised that in the popular, slightly hip mind, therapy in that sense is still not properly understood. Even the basic developmental stuff, like how you're shaped by early experience, is not truly, simply, clearly understood in a way that it could be. Um, I wonder, have you heard of the holistic psychologist on Instagram? No. <clears throat> She, I'm pretty sure she's Pluto and Virgo. I would have to fact check that. But she's a psychologist who makes like these graphic, these infographics about psychology. And she has reached over a million followers. And there's this whole movement, she calls it like self-healers. And it's just psychological education that gets spread on the internet like memes would, which I think is pretty astounding. I do too. Yeah, I'm sure there's a certain simplification that's going on in that that I, you know, just personally not enjoy. But we'd have to be open-hearted here and say that's just a great thing. I mean, that's part of it. I mean, here I am with this weird guy with like desktop notes stuck to my computer going, the world has not understood the implications of depth psychology. And there's someone making an effort to make it happen. So I, I think that kind of thing's great. I think the the tech possibilities, you know, the fact that you and I can have this conversation right now is just marvelous. There are shadows. I, I, I think we, we don't understand the early stages of transitioning to a visual multimedia culture. You know, we had an oral tradition for generations, then we shifted around the Gutenberg Bible and the Renaissance towards a written culture. And now we're transitioning to a visual multimedia culture. And I think we're in the early stages of narcissistic freak out about that process in many ways. Um, I think... So yeah, healing modalities, linking certain kind of scientific or clinical insights to actual deeper psychology is something for that generation. Um, I don't think we've seen its full social or political flowering yet. I, I think that's still in the wings. Um, can, can it grow into that power without the, the endless hysteria about the state of things? It, there's a, I'm struggling to remember his name. There's a guy that wrote the book, The Cave and the Light, comparing Socrates and Plato throughout Western thought. I think it's something like Arthur Herner. I'd have to check. He wrote a book on uh, just like the wreck of Western civilization, just the feeling that they've had it. There's these great quotes, and you think it's someone today just talking about the current crisis, and it turns out to be some Roman senator saying it's all going to hell in a handbasket. Everything's turned, turned to dust, you know? This fear we have as people, just what we must have lived through, you know, from the, the great wars of the 20th century or the Spanish flu epidemic after the First World War killed more people than the war, or the bubonic plague in Europe killed 30 to 40% of the entire continent. It's like when we encounter these viruses or these feelings of the psychological or existential threat we live with, we have all this history 
of that. There's an excellent book by Barbara Hanklau, Catastrophobia, you know, where we're, we're held in memories of previous loss of existence of civilizations. Or, and I think the Pluto and Virgo generation needs to, or I try to see it as positively imaging its way through that crisis, catastrophobia, fear to the best of itself. Because you'd have to say, if you stripped it all back existentially, we're all born to die. That's just a given. We're all going to die anyway. I think it's a Lana Del Rey song. Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, good for her, you know. We're all going to die anyway. All, everyone we know and love is going to die. Even my beautiful 20-month-old daughter, who I just said goodnight to before I came on this podcast, who was calling out daddy on the top of the stairs, is going to die. You know, the most precious thing to me in the world will die everything you know and love will die. In that context, how can you live in such a way where you give of yourself in the brightest possible way, in the most dedicated possible way for the, for the allotted time that you have? That seems to me the, the kind of best. If Pluto in Virgo placed itself truly to the Pisces ultimate, that's the dedication. If you, if you place the Pluto in Virgo warrior self against the placed a sacrificial act against the altar of reality, Pisces, the inner sacrifice of dedication, then, then the Pluto Virgo energy would stream as discerning action with every available ounce of your energy all of the time. That would be the act of centering in it, that all of the time you would endeavor to do the most right or the most good, that the will to good in you would flow out in the most dynamic way all of the time. And that's my personal goal. You know, it's patchy, frankly. It's a work in progress, the actuality. But as a goal, it's very inspiring to me. And I think I think we see that in certain movements in our time. I really do. That's beautiful. It sounds like well paired with a lot of forgiveness as well, like trusting that what is being done when it's it feels inspired and feels good that it's enough and focusing on that as opposed to all the other things that are not happening. Yeah. Well, and that's the positive version of the forgiveness. But even beyond that, in the deepest states, one can forgive even when it's not like that. In the deepest state, one forgives even the damage. Let's say that the human animal just got out of hand and destroyed its own habitat. That's what most animals would do. In Britain, because there are no wolves anymore or bears, deers have no natural predator. And the Forestry Commission culls deer. They kill a certain percentage to keep the deer population healthy. Otherwise, the deer population starts to morph physically. Smaller deer are born to make less of an environmental impact in case they destroy their own habitat through lack of predation. So that's taken care of by the Forestry Commission, i.e. all natural species without predation will just expand and proliferate until their environment cuts them back. Are humans any different? We have the potential to be different, but if we weren't actually different from that, would it be so strange that we weren't better than the other animals when it came to it? You know, it's, it's like we have to look at ourselves and understand that the evolution of the human ego through the kind of animalistic condition that we haven't always transcended and that the best of us could transcend that, but we're not always at our best. And their forgiveness around that too. I, I'd like to see, it's important that people have standards. And I think that people have greater standards about the origins of trauma, about social justice and things is great. But could those standards be applied constructively and progressively? 
could we examine this threatening punitive superego aspect of it where it's almost like we need to get them before they get us kind of fear and energy behind it people make mistakes people are assholes people are racist people are sexist people fuck up people made a move on someone and they didn't like it because because that's the sort of heterosexual dance you know we live in a world if we if we take some of it too seriously there will be no heterosexual dance anymore no no one will take a risk no one will will say god you look hot because it's just this culture of like, how demeaning is that? But that misunderstands what the heterosexual dance was. So in a world where people trust that the actual criminals, the, the Weinsteins of this world go to jail, then perhaps the actual dance can still exist and there could still be eros and play in the human world. But if we don't trust that and we're in that hysterical, traumatized place, that edge of I can't trust the world anymore, then even the good things start to get eroded because that's what the trauma mindset does. The trauma mindset bleeds the world of eros and play. Hmm. That's a really rich topic. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on it. Um, yes. Yeah. And it takes a lot to even just say that too. Yeah. And it's yeah, a I'm current moment. It's a current exactly. taboo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'm sure there are people that would be happily writing into me now if they, if they could, or if they, yeah, I'm aware, but I, I just think that, that what, what do people's dogs and cats teach them in this world? I was talking to a lady who lost her dog at 12 or 14 years. And she was remembering how, when she came in from the supermarket, this little dog would jump up and down. He was so greedy for the food she had. He would act insane. And out of love, she would just give in to his greed and give him whatever he wanted. And that was all part of the joy for her. And I said to her, yeah, you love your dog so much that you forgive the animal. That's what love does. It forgives the selfish part too, the selfish part of eros, the selfish part of desire, the selfish part of caring for people or caring about your work or anything. Just, just being in the world, that the, that the most total love, the most innocent love forgives the modicum of selfishness still within or the animalistic. When I love my daughter and she's grasping or she wants my food, she comes on my lap because she wants to start stealing from my plate. You know, it's like the love transcends this narcissistic little bundle that wants everything she can get her hands on. Yeah? It transcends that because you don't care because she's your daughter. That's what the cat and dog does, or the daughter that's like a little puppy dog that wants everything that you've got. The love transcends the animal, or it transcends the, the egoic grasping urges. <laughs> and that love is very powerful. That's why people love their pets so much, because they want a love that can be innocent enough to allow that other part. You know, we can use like a, a stronger capacity for reconciliation within culture. Like I read the book, uh, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus recently, and I found it yep. to be a profound read because there was one part of my socially conditioned self at this very moment where I was like, this is trash. I should throw it at a wall because of its gender binary, whatever. But it was actually very deeply insightful and it showed the ways that different uh, traditionally masculine and traditionally feminine complexes work off of each other. So. Within that, um, I think there's a great deal of care and 
transformation that gender relations could go through? Oh, for um, sure. I, I read on a, on a similar level, I read the five love languages of Gary Chapman recently because I was writing out for a Venus workshop. I'm doing at NORWAC something on relationships and Venus and later in Bend in September, early September, I'm doing a much more complete four-day workshop on relationships and I'm going to explore Venus through all the archetypes and I was wanting to use this idea of different languages that people express their core value or love for another and link it to different archetypes and it's like a pink book it's kind of cheesily formatted it's just the kind of thing I wouldn't normally read and yet I found myself blocking out certain sections as would transform people's lives mm-hmm. what well, the great for all this um, you know kind of percentage of people exploring very different options and different identities. A lot of people are in conventional heterosexual, relatively traditional relationships. And John Gray, this, you know, former monks meditation on men retreating to their cave and women needing a more verbal relational space to work things out is pretty accurate in a lot of households, you know, to, to ignore that kind of sage advice from this, this man who retreated from the world and, you know, was pretty sensitive when he came back to it. So the kind of dynamics going on in it, just seems sort of maybe a bit snobby and foolish. I mean, I, I'm prone to that kind of snobbishness myself. You know, I like to read yeah, certain same. types of in, intense <laughs> books, you know, but, but actually some of those books contain really powerful insights. And um, if you're really humble and you really care about helping people, you don't care if it's a cheesy book that gives you the insight rather than a cool book. You don't care about cool, really, in the end, do you? You care about if these two people that love each other can actually find a way to share that love in, in a way that meaningfully uplifts their life, you know, free of judgment, free of any sense of, you know, wrongdoing. That's what I would aim for because that's what people want when they love each other. They just want to show that love, share that love with another without any fear of wrongdoing or shame. That's beautiful. Well, how can people find and work with you? What are you working on? I know you're into research, so I'd love to hear about that. Well, so I'm about to publish in probably April a book on the planetary nodes of Jupiter outwards. So it'll be a kind of study of history, the influence of this background architecture held by the nodes, where we start to see that the chart can reveal through these connections that Dane Rudyard was working on in the latter part of his work. In the mature vision of Rudyard basically said the lunar and planetary nodes are the most significant thing in astrology. And I've just picked up from that. So I'll be publishing on the planetary node, which is the equivalent of many years, the outcome of many years of research. It'll take you through history effectively, showing you through charts this background architecture of the influence of these positions indicating certain collective themes or processes moving through humanity. As a result of that has changed my view of the lunar nodes. So I'm writing a book currently called The Destiny Line about the lunar nodes, which I hope to get out in the next couple of years. But really a lot of my focus has been on the more intense workshop experience. I've been running a series of masterclasses here in Wales in the sort of annex office house next to my house space so i'm doing one in july that sold out but i'm doing one in the last week of october called the leading edge about how to use astrology within a psychological understanding to help facilitate the leading edge in a, in a person's development how to identify where their sort of cutting edge area of growth is and how to support them unfold that um, so that's the focus of this masterclass. 
and then yeah like i said for for norwalk and and in this workshop in bend and the 4th to the 7th of september and in bend i'm exploring the astrological and psychological keys to healthy relationship so i'll be looking at developmental psychology early childhood mirroring and development and how it can tend to shadow adult relationships because i would say just displaced childhood emotion is the most frequent cause of why relationships where people care about each other unravels they just lack of understanding of the way the other person was shaped by their family background or conditioned by their early childhood environment so i'll explore that through an analysis of um, early developmental psychology but then i do an extended breakdown of venus through all the archetypes i haven't done that before I haven't done like a detailed venus teaching so it's going to be quite a joy to do that in the nice setting of bend which i've heard is lovely in the fall just all beautiful trees and stuff i've never been there so be exciting for me on that level too and then i go on to the esau conference where i'm doing a workshop on saturn and i'm speaking on counseling skills in astrology how to include within the environment of the reading a sensitivity to the development of the individual you're working with and what their needs are which is just shockingly absent from lots of practice you know lots of practice is just the intellectual task of breaking down the chart for the other person and you know well full well that i criticize that i guess you know i just don't think that's good enough i think there are rare exceptions i think if you are giving a reading for a student of your approach who only wants the intellectual breakdown then it is appropriate to just sit there and give the intellectual breakdown but in my vision of astrology someone who doesn't know astrology at all comes to you for a reading and has a potentially life-changing experience so how can that happen if all you're doing is intellectually breaking down the chart dynamics when when they're not interested in that they just want to know what it says about them or what it shows us is possible. So I'm going to look at simple ways that people can approach that. And I'm thinking to get putting it together another course on that. I already have an existing course, Counseling Skills for Astrologers on the Pluto School website. And I have an introduction to my vision of evolutionary astrology or transformative astrology at a sort of introductory course. Um, I'm thinking, because a client of mine picked it up, soul speaks the book on the counseling dynamics and said what would this book be like if you just took the astrology out and added all your understanding of therapy and coaching i mean sometime i might just play with that you know i'm i'm in this transition period sabrina i'm in this transition period for the last five years i've just done enormous client numbers enormous numbers of readings enormous numbers of mentoring sessions you know just 25 sessions a week for like five years like 48 weeks a year 46 weeks a year just in, and I'm transitioning out, looking at what from all of this work I've done, what could be shared meaningfully? What, what could I? Riches have surely emerged out of all this process and all this work with good people. And how can I meaningfully share it? The combination of writing, working with this researcher, which allows me to delve into so many chart, historical charts. I've done that. Also, by the way, because I'm just trying to take the profession seriously, I really don't like the idea of adding more astrological points of analysis. You know, I find that there's enough already most of the time. So when I decided to look into this planetary nodes, I was very aware that I didn't want to just turn around to people and say, oh, check out all these other strange points. Like you needed more to learn about with astrology. So I've done so much research because I wanted to present a sober representation to the community. These are so effective. Why would 
Rudyard at the absolute peak of his power say they were so important. And now I've looked into them for over 10 years and the last three years I've had a researcher working for me three days a week, just checking out charts, placing them, placing historical context, looking at their evolution. It's just their impact is unbelievable. Rudyard was no fool. I love Rudyard. I know, I know. He was just, he was just on it. He was just on it. And so I feel a kind of privilege to be picking up from where he left off, frankly. I feel like I'm standing on the shoulder of giants. Feels like a Pluto and Virgo empowerment to have a researcher. <laughs> yes, it's super helpful. Oh, yeah, my good friend and, and my researcher, Patrick Graham, who's an independent astrologer in his own right and starting to write some really interesting articles based on the research we've been doing, is a pleasure and a privilege. It really makes a difference because whilst I was doing all that client work, I would not have been able to look into detailed breakdowns of historical periods, whereas he's been able to do that whilst I continued working with people. And now it'll be such an achievement. You know, it will really be a largely a joint achievement that we brought the book together. I mean, it's me writing it, but the researcher's vision and preparation has been the work of two people. And it's super helpful. Well, this is an incredible body of work that you've brought to the astrology world. I'm so grateful for it. And I found you first through The Soul Speaks, and that completely revolutionized my astrology practice. Just the ideas I picked up from you about how to create like a more therapeutic environment, how to ask more questions instead of making assumptions. And yeah, I don't know. Like it was definitely a pivotal point in my astrology practice. So I'm really grateful for what you've brought to the astrology community and excited to see what you are up to next. Thanks. Thanks. And it means a lot to me. I'm, I'm so glad you found that. I mean, it was years ago, the soul speaks, I suspended the planetary node research and the lunar node research to write that over three years. I really suspended a lot of work I was doing, but that's how important I felt it was. And it, it always lights me up when people got it, you know, yeah. that it, it's in this super pragmatic way. You could just make adjustments to your readings without even dropping any of your technical stuff. I wasn't even trying to technically influence people's vision of astrology in a way. Just more say, include the other, include the incredible resource of the person that you're doing the reading for, not just their chart. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad. I've really enjoyed hanging out with you tonight. I've got to say it's been a pleasure and a privilege. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, and, uh, husband. Yeah, yeah, and the you at twelve, you know, it's like <laughs> you were setting the seeds, weren't you, for this kind of dynamic quest of understanding and and writing and sharing. Yeah, totally, great. it was my Jupiter and Virgo return. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Pleasure. Thank you, Sabrina. Thank you.